0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is. Our original sponsor, they're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures, they just have everything that you could possibly want plus Leon, their owner is an amazing dude he uh, he's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need and uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street, so you gotta go down, you gotta check out their merchandise, sometimes they have weekly live role playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff, they're doing championships all the time, you've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you.
1: listening to Speech Bubble,
0: the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Follow us on social media any social media platform at Speech Bubble Pod, You can also subscribe to our show at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Uh, if you're going to subscribe, if you're going to listen to this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do that, I will send you a free comic from my own personal collection. You just have to DM me with your address and tell me that you wrote a review and And you will get a random comic from me. Uh, Reviews are very helpful because they help new people find our podcast. Anyway, switching gears, uh, I want to talk about our guest today. Uh, Me and this guest go back a long time. Uh, I've known him. I met him the first year that I came to Toronto to study at Ryerson University in 2003 when I was first getting into the Toronto comic scene. Uh, At the time, he was part of a... Uh, Toronto artist collective called Sketchkrieg uh, many of those members I went on to become friends with uh, he has worked on a graphic novel called Quarter Life Crisis which is all about it's self-published it's all about how there's like this apocalypse and only those who are you know 25 sort of survive and they band together and sort of take over certain neighborhoods and there's all these different factions of uh, different neighborhoods of 25 year olds, you know, fighting for resources in a post-apocalyptic Toronto. But these days he has sort of moved on from comics a little bit. He's working on a YA sort of middle uh, kid reader type of thing, tween book. It's called the dead kid detective agency, Perfect for Halloween, it centers on a girl named October Schwartz, and uh, she starts seeing Dead people, basically. And uh, there's four books out right now. The newest one is called Connect the Scots. Uh, Evan is on tour right now across Ontario. And hes I think he's going to Alberta to promote it. He's in the midst of a tour. He'll be on tour. I think the last event is November 22nd. So this book, The Dead Kid Detective Agency, it's published by ECW Press. Uh, please welcome Evan. Evan Monday to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, I you're one of those people that was on my initial list when I pitched this show. Oh, uh, wow. Like the type of guests that I would like to have on. You were on the list at the time you were working on uh, Quarter Life Crisis. And I thought, perfect, awesome. So, I'm, I'm glad that I could finally help you out and, and have you on. Yeah, thanks so much. And I guess like a little
1: behind the scenes knowledge is that I work full-time as a book publicist. So, oftentimes I'm sending you uh, or sort of like recommending books that some of my fellow publicists are doing that are like good for the show. So, anything that's sort of comics related. Uh, So, it's kind of fun to be here as a guest rather than Someone who's, like, trying to sell you on, on other books and other authors. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: your publisher has really helped us out with, like, our guest booking because, you know, <laughs> you guys have arranged some really high-profile people, especially around uh, TCAF time. So, thanks for that. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, but let's start at the beginning, Evan, because... You know, I, I I've known you for a long time, but there's parts of your life that I don't know at all. So, where <laughs> where did you grow up? What uh, where did, how did you start
1: your childhood? Yeah, so I mean, I'm my dark secret is that I'm an American. Okay. So I'm a dual citizen now, but yes, I grew up mostly in the New Jersey area. So I grew up in New Jersey. I guess in moving into high school is when I, started, I moved to the suburbs of Toronto. So around that time, my dad got transferred in his job where he, used, where he used to work. They had a New York office and Toronto office. The New York office closed down and my family moved to the suburbs of Toronto. So I went to high school in Oakville. And both uh, I have a brother, so the two of us kind of have stayed up in Canada ever since. And my parents have since returned, not to New Jersey, but they returned to the States. That's awesome. Wow. Cool. So, where do they live in the States now? So, they live in North Carolina. Uh, They don't live anywhere near the the path of Hurricane uh, Florence or or any any hurricanes, really. They're pretty far inland, but yeah, they've been in North Carolina for, I guess, about 12 years now. Nice. What's it like being a dual citizen? Do you like it? Uh, It's a magical experience, uh, especially around tax time when I get to file two different tax returns. Uh, So, I mean, I do uh, hold on to that citizenship because I do like voting in presidential elections in the States. Uh, I feel like I have some very, very small uh, um, element of power in uh, deciding who who becomes president in the U.S., but at other times it's just sort of annoyance, like filing two tax returns. I'm still on the. Uh, When you turn 18 as a male, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but I had to sign on to the draft lottery in case they ever decide to institute the military draft again. Whoa. Yeah. So I think I'm like too old to be called into active service if that ever happens. But if for a while it was, it was a weird
0: thing. Yeah. That is weird. Crazy. Yeah. So I want to get into like. What were you What were you reading as a kid? Like what were your influence? I know that you were into comics but like what were some of your early childhood influences? Yeah,
1: I mean, I was like a huge comics fan growing up and definitely more a Marvel kid. Uh, my mom was like a big enabler so this is back when you could get comic books at the supermarket. So whenever she went to the supermarket she would get a comic for myself and one for my brother. Uh, and I was, like, huge into X-Men at the time. This was kind of, like, for me, what I think of as, like, the golden years of X-Men. It was, um, you know, kind of the late 80s. So, there was, like, Mark Silvestri doing, like, Chris Claremont, Mark Silvestri kind of run of Uncanny X-Men. And then I was still reading the classic X-Men, which was kind of, like, earlier. And at the time, I didn't even realize that classic X-Men were reprints. I thought they were just these like kind of simultaneous stories for a long time. Um, But those are kind of big influences, a lot of X-Men stuff. I was really into like Captain America in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, into I don't know spider-man as well so i was really into a lot of marvel stuff new warriors was like totally my jam i love speedball uh so were you, I really, were
0: you upset when
1: they were like responsible yeah for, like, the i Civil mean i War? felt like very betrayed when they were like oh let's blame all this stuff on speedball and the <laughs> new warriors but uh <laughs> i was like really um they haven't been doing anything for years and then this uh so but i was really into that that kind of stuff and then in terms of books i was really into like spooky stuff like I really like, there's a guy named John Belair's who wrote a lot of spooky books. They actually are making a movie out of one of his more famous books, The House with a Clock in Its Walls. That's oh, yeah, yeah,
0: with uh, Jack, Jack Black. Black. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that all,
1: that all uh, that's out this October. Um, so, I really liked his books and also like those Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books. I love those. They really freaked me out. So, Did you go to the Guillermo del Toro exhibit and see all the scary stories? I did. I was so impressed. Original yeah, art? Original art from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And actually, the sad part is now if you those books are still in print, but the newer version of the books have way less scary artwork. Like, cause the artwork is the really terrifying part of those books. And now they have like, I forget who does it now, but it's like, so toned down. Uh,
0: I'd hate to be the artist <laughs> who's like following up. Yeah. Artists, right. Like, lauded artist. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, damn. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I really love that. That was like some of
1: my favorite stuff is all the stuff that he, from his collection that he was just really into. That's cool.
0: That's awesome. Um, so like, In terms of, like, you know, growing up and and your childhood and that sort of thing, um, when did you decide that you wanted to be part of, you know, the comic scene? I remember when I met you, you were, like, tabling at, like, Fan Expo and, like, Paradise, the old Paradise show that used to be around. When did you go from being, like, a fan to wanting to kind of do it? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I've always wanted to do it. And I think
1: as a kid, my brother and I were always making our own comics. Like, pretty much as soon as we started reading comics, we were making our own comics. And we started off making our own, like you know, bootleg X-Men comics that we would really just show to each other. And then we started making like our own characters like that eventually like kind of evolved into us making comics with totally, original—well, maybe not totally original characters, but somewhat original characters. Um, So I've always kind of done comics. And when I was in university, I was doing comics as well. And I think it was actually uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Tyrone McCarthy. So, meeting him and and Alana, his then girlfriend, now wife, at one of the sort of first Toronto conventions I went to. At that point, I was, I think I had it in my mind, like, I would have a portfolio and show it to people and someone would hire me, obviously. And that didn't happen, but just meeting some of the people in Artist Alley. And I know especially Tyrone was like a huge influencer. He was just like, oh, he's like, what do you think? Like, I just started making this stuff and, you know, you save up enough money to print it and then sell it at these shows and you just like buy a table. I was like, oh, you can do that? Like, to me, that was, I didn't understand at that point. And he's like, yeah, it's like, just save up money and like sell your stuff and like your stuff, like people will be interested in it. So, I really was encouraged by both both him and Alana were selling their own stuff, like shortly, like at least a few years before I started doing that. So um, that really got me into it. So I had a table and then eventually I met up you know, started befriending people who I saw at Artist Alley. So I got along with, so that included Tyrone and Alana, as well as a lot of the other people that ended up forming that group Sketch Creek.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me tell you who was in Sketch Creek just for people who uh, Mm want to know. And this is just a bunch of artists who wanted to like table together and like, you know, save money on table costs and that sort of thing. And you guys were friends and stuff. Yeah. But it was basically like, it was, it was Jason Liu from the pitiful human lizard. Mm -hmm. It was, zen rankin Mm -hmm. and it was uh, brian hong who was in it and then Alana and tyrone and you and then who else am i missing anyone uh, jillian newland jillian newland who's who's now the wife of uh, brian hong right yeah
1: and very 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 briefly um arthur de la cruz was in the group oh cool yeah he wasn't super committed to it, I don't think. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, he was there for a couple of things, and he's like, Oh, he's like, Oh, they're inviting me as a guest. And we're like, Okay.
0: <laughs> and sometimes I think you had like guests who would table with you. Like, yeah, for didn't sure. Didn't Willow Dawson table with you guys a couple times? Yeah, like everyone. So, like, we started off really just wanting to save money
1: on table costs, and we're like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just get like a whole row of artists out there that's just us? So we would like add people on uh, here and there. We also really liked the idea of, sort of encouraging each other to, cause it's hard when you're doing it part time and kind of outside of your job, whenever you can find time to, 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 work on comics. So we really thought it would like keep us making stuff. If we were meeting regularly like, Oh, what have you been working on? Let me see, you know, just having someone check in on your work and making sure that you were producing new art or producing new comics. And you were doing comic jams as sketch. Creator, yeah. Right? Like that kind of became a big project. We did this kind of thing where we would, someone would, draw one panel and then pass it to the next person, we just keep adding to it. Uh, until we had this, like, ridiculous, insane story that made no sense. Um, but that was kind of a fun project, too, because it was like, oh, every three days I got to make sure I've got a panel that's, like, fully colored and fully inked and sent to someone else.
0: Nice, nice. So, did you meet everyone else in Sketch Craig through Tyrone, or did you bring some of them in? Or? I think we all knew each other. Like, I, I think
1: it was a bit more organic. Like, I think Tyrone and Alana were the first people that... I knew who were doing it regularly and then some of the rest of us came a bit later, but we all kind of met each other at artist alleys, at Fan Expo, at like the Paradise Comics Con. Like local conventions and we just sort of gravitated to one another. I think we just were all like hanging out. I know Brian and and Zen knew each other from Sheridan for sure but like a lot of the rest of us we were just like oh after the show do you want to like hang out at someone's house or like go out for a drink or that kind of thing. So we just started hanging out and then decided to kind of make it more official. So we're like oh we can save money on tables instead of me paying for a table by myself. I don't need you know all six feet. So we kind of
0: just work together that way that's awesome that's really cool it was sort of a storied thing because I I, I, I that's how I met you guys when you had your whole row yeah yeah and <laughs> I would drive my scooter but it'd be a little too close to the table and it would almost ruin the banner or <laughs> or pull the tablecloth off well part or, of the problem is our banners were stuck up with like
1: thumbtacks at like right. Stood out quite a while from the table. So, that was a problem too. Right, right, right for sure. So, what did you go to school for? Uh, I went to school for English. So, I went to mm-hmm. Waterloo and I studied English. At Waterloo, they have a very specific program called English Rhetoric and Professional Writing because okay. I really wanted to learn how to get better at writing. And that program was like all sorts of writing. So, it was writing, creative writing, but it was also writing for say journal journalism, writing for technical manuals, writing for speeches, like They tried to, essentially it was trying to make it more professional, like instead of going to English and just studying literature, you did some of that, but you also did a lot of studying like how to write a effective speech. That kind of helps, right? Because everybody needs an effective communicator, right? For sure. Yeah, it was a huge help. And like, I feel like I still covered a lot of, you know, the bases, the kind of canon of of. English literature as well, but there was also a
0: lot of more kind of making your, your own language more effective. Cool. So what was the first comic that you sort of published under the Sketch Creek uh, banner?
1: I think when we started doing Sketch Creek, the thing I was working on then was this um, comic book series called The Amazing Challengers of Unknown Mystery.
0: I remember that. So that was
1: a comic book that I made with uh, a ridiculous title. And my idea was to make, I was living in Waterloo, I think, when it started. I was doing shows in Toronto, but I was still living in Waterloo because that's where I went to university. And it was about Waterloo's greatest superhero team. And the joke was like, they were their only superhero team and they all had very low. I mean, some of them had pretty effective superpowers, but they all kind of dressed in plain clothes. And some of their powers were not all that effective. Like, I think one of my favorite characters was this guy who could raise the dead which kind of ties to my books now, but he could raise the dead. But what he was doing with that power was raising the dead. So he could write really um, powerful memoirs uh, or like biographies of historical figures. So like if he wanted to write a biography of Wilfred Lloyd, he would literally like raise him from the, from his grave and then interview him and like ask him what he thought about raise things and just write a book based on that.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) I'd love to do that. (laughs) Right. That would make my (laughs) podcast so much more successful. (laughs) think of all the dead
1: (laughs) comic creators who all right if you had the power to raise one comic creator
0: from the dead no so let's say three which three comic creators would you raise okay interview will eisner all right because will eisner was somebody that i almost met so oh yeah so well i call it almost met. yeah i there was a paradise show and i think 2005, mm-hmm. and it was in the summer. And at that point, I was still going to university in Toronto. So in the summer, you have to go back to where you came from. And yeah. I came from Vancouver, so I had to go back home. Uh, so yet. I couldn't. I couldn't. I know where to live in Toronto to stay in this in the summer. So I had to go back to Vancouver, but. Will Eisner was coming and I'm like oh I so want to like meet Will Eisner yeah, yeah. and I didn't get to because I had to go back to Vancouver and then like a few months later he, he died. died yeah a few months later and yeah. I'm like oh <laughs> and from then on I was always like if you get an opportunity Haunted to meet, by that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you ever get an opportunity to meet your heroes you should take that opportunity because yeah. you never know when they're gonna be gone right yeah yeah So Will Eisner would definitely be someone because I want to, I would want to redeem that meeting that almost happened. Uh, I'd want to uh, Harvey Pekar probably Uh, because I was really into like American Splendor Mm. and stuff and sort of the daily comics. And he, he reminds me a lot uh, like my dad got a kick out of him yeah, yeah. and like totally got his sort of Curb Your Enthusiasm-esque <laughs> yeah. sensibility. So I think like hanging out with him with my dad, I think my dad wouldn't stop laughing if RB- yeah. RBG car came around because <laughs> it's just the how much of a character he is. Yeah. And then third, it would probably have to be Jack Kirby yeah, yeah, because if I had that opportunity and I didn't raise Jack Kirby, yeah. people would be like,
1: what? <laughs> What are <laughs> you
0: thinking? Oh, thinking. <laughs> so it would have to be Jack Kirby, and I would have to interview Jack Kirby yeah, for sure. A daunting task, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. But yeah, good question. That's an awesome <laughs> question. So you like turn the tables? Over <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, no, it, it was all good. It was all good. So you're working on the amazing challenges of unknown mystery. Where did you get your drawing talent from? Uh, I mean, uh, that's nice of you to call it
1: drawing talent, but uh, I think it was just like practice like I always wanted to make comics and it was really like through middle school through high school I was always just practicing and just drawing comics over and over again the trick I always tell people that like horrifies teachers is I think when I was in like maybe 14 or 15 I decided I was like I really need to learn how to draw better so what I did was picked like eight comic artists that I really liked at that time and I'm like, I'm just going to copy their work. I'm just going to copy pages and pages of their work. Uh, and so, I did that. I picked like eight people I was really into at the time, copied pages and pages of their work and then two months later, I picked another eight artists I really liked and then copied pages and pages of their work. So. I know you're supposed to sort of draw from life and like eventually got into that but before I did that I was copying a lot of artists but not copying one artist I feel like where people fall into a trap is they find one artist they really like and really kind of ape their style but I was just aping so many different people's styles what I was trying to do was try to learn how different people solve drawing problems so it's like oh this is how Mike Alred draws a car but then this is how Jim Lee draws a car and then this is how I forget who else, you know, like this is how Eric Larson draws a car. So I was trying to figure out all these different ways people drew like things that I was having trouble with. They're always kind of like issues that some things you find really easy to draw and other things you find difficult. So it was really kind of trying to study what they were doing and then trying to eventually incorporate that into my own style without copying them anymore
0: it's awesome I mean don't feel bad and and, it, <laughs> and if teachers are horrified yeah. like they have to know that like professional artists started out right? by aping Everyone, yeah. the artists that they admire like people we've had on this podcast have copied uh, other artists uh, yeah, before just they
1: yeah before they developed their style uh, I think you had Hoche Anderson on and he was talking about how he just used to like rip off Howard Chaikin mercilessly right and right he sort of yeah evolved his own style
0: right right and like and uh, you know we, we just had jay bone in studio before you and uh, he was talking about all the all the people that he copied uh, to get better at drawing and stuff so but the key is finding your own style after that don't continue to copy people when you're professionally (laughs) working so for sure and and i noticed that like that's sort of carried over uh, into your into your book that you're doing now. But I, I wanna kinda get into like how did like with the whole sketchcraig thing, it seemed like you were, you know, you're moving along. You were self-publishing your own stuff and it was great. Did you have aspirations for being like discovered by like DC or Marvel or like working in comics professionally or that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean I think we all
1: did to some degree. I don't know if any of us really like wanted to do something for Marvel or DC, but I think we all kind of wanted to get to the level. I think probably for me I was hoping that, you know, eventually someone like Image or Oni or like some kind of smaller press that did more creator own work would pick up on some of the stuff we were doing uh and take an interest in it. But yeah, I think it kind of like like a lot of things, life gets in the way. That uh, book I did, kind of the first, you know, graphic novel or trade paperback, uh, "Quarter Life Crisis," was supposed to be the first of a uh, collection of four. Right. Like in my mind, I was there were going to be. It was called "Quarter Life Crisis." There would be four quarters, and that would tell the whole story. But I never got around to like doing any beyond the first one. And the first one itself was for me like the biggest work I'd done at that point because it was, I forget, it was like 108 pages of, of
0: comic and that for me was like so much work. It like knocked me out. Quarter Life is always fun for me because like people find it in like bargain bins yeah, yeah. bookstores <laughs> and they're like, F and Monday, what? Because you're so known around like the book publishing scene with the PR and stuff and then also like it's on Goodreads. Yeah, it is on Goodreads because I have like a other Goodreads profile. So, like the few
1: people who have like read that book start like rating that. Book yeah, <laughs> because, yeah, uh, yeah. The other weird thing is that it ended up, it's the only one of my books that's been taught uh, at the university level. Oh. So, I know a poet named Daniel Scott Tisdale and he taught a graphic novel. He maybe still does, but he taught a graphic novel course at U of T Scarborough and he asked me, he's like, oh, he's like, you know, if we did a course order for, I forget what it was, like 140 copies, could you, could you supply them? I was like, sure. So, we kind of sold them through the beguiling. Um, but yeah, there was like this class of like 100 students who had all read the book and I went into the class and they were asking these like very academic questions about this weird comic book about a post-apocalyptic Toronto. And had you thought of answers for it? Yeah, that? I mean, I feel like it's very sometimes very easy to answer questions about your own work. Uh, but every once in a while, someone will ask you something that you hadn't really thought of. and You're like, oh, I didn't even know. Maybe. Um, but it was just kind of fun to, to have like, oh, this whole course is, is reading this book. Uh, for me, Quarter Life Crisis really came out of my love for Scott Pilgrim. Like, Scott Pilgrim for me was a book that changed a lot of things in my mind. I was like, it was the first time I thought of Toronto. was like, oh, Toronto, this is a place that can you can make into this mythic town, right? Like, it had been done before with New York and and London and like sort of a lot of major cities. Right. It was the first time I saw Toronto, I'm like, oh, they're taking Toronto and making it like there's so many in-jokes for people who are local, but for people who are, have never been to Toronto, I think they would read this book and be like, oh, Toronto seems like it's like weird, cool city. And for me, that was super exciting. So I kind of want, like when I tell people about Queer Life Crisis, I essentially say it's like if Mad Max and Scott Pilgrim had a baby, like that's what I was trying to do with that book. Nice. That's awesome. What happened?
0: What, like, <laughs> why, why didn't it become the four? Because I remember I would come to the table and you would pitch it to me enthusiastically. Yeah. And you'd be like, it's going to be four and (laughs) this is the first one and stuff. So, like, like what happened? And what happened to Sketch Creek?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a number of things. For me, like, my work in, like, book publicity was taking up a lot more of my time. And also, I think around the time that I was working on the second Quarter Life Crisis book was when the first Dead Kid book. I was working on that as well like kind of simultaneously and then someone was interested in publishing that book and actually turning it into a series and it kind of became a thing where well I work you know 40 to 60 hours a week I only have so much free time and I started to focus on the on the the book series just because I was like well it's like going to publish this and yeah. like sell it into stores and I don't have to do that and um, someone is actually going to pay me to to make these books uh, so that kind of became a priority. And I think it was, like, the case with other people as well in Sketch Creek. I know, like, at the time, I mean, Tyrone, I think, has returned to making art. And I know Alana, I think Alana was always the case. But, I mean, I know they had kids and, like, for Tyrone working he had his print shop and that became like a real priority for a while. Zen also had kids and like teaching his teaching gigs also became a high priority. And right. I think he wasn't, and he wasn't in Toronto. He like moved, yeah, out, exactly. like he moved out of the city. The so it's it kind of harder to be part of it. And yeah. like, I always really admire like Brian and Jill and also Jason, particularly for like keeping at it. And they're still doing like Brian and Jill left their jobs and they make a living doing cons, like selling their work at cons. And like Lou has like, he put out so many issues of Pitiful Human Lizard, and I love that book. And I'm just like, oh, this is what I wanted to do. And I just didn't have the, like, I don't know, work ethic work ethic uh, yeah. to, to keep at it.
0: Yeah. I mean, Jason, like, for those who don't know, and, and for those who didn't go back and listen to our episode. Yeah. I mean, he worked at the, li- he works at the library. Yeah. And then he comes home, and he does, like, a 24-page comic, like, at night yeah. when he's not working at the library. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And he, he has,
1: like, such, such an amazing work ethic. And, like, he'll just, like, post these photos where it's, like, him. He's like, oh, in the past 10 days, I drew and ink the the last issue of Pitifully Human Lizard.
0: Right. And what? all oh. the, all the pages are, like, on the floor. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my. You're just you're just trying to get, like, kudos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but, I mean, but, they're deserved. They're deserved. Yeah, he does yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah. He's, like, yeah, incredible. Yeah, like, he's yeah. putting us all to shame. <laughs> oh, man. But, I mean, you also, like, you... You were at Coach House for a while. Uh, yeah. Now you're at Random House. But, like, you're working on this book too while you're trying to maintain a job. And I'm a writer, like, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I do mm. articles full time. But, I've had opportunities to, you know, write books for, you know, publishers and literary agents, things. And I'm like, where do people find the time <laughs> to do this? Like, I, I, you know, I just got married and they kind of want me to write a book about like that yeah, and, yeah. you know, being married, like being in a relationship and having a kid and have, being a person with a disability. And I'm like, well, what a, how How am I gonna write this? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, <laughs> how do you like get home and then write. Like, where do you find the time to write? Yeah, I mean, it's hard
1: and uh, it's not consistent. Like, I feel like a lot of writers have a regimen where they like, I wake up every day at four and I write for two hours before I get ready for work or whatever or something like that. I'm not that strict with a regimen. Like, most of my writing I do late at night uh, or on the weekends, but night is kind of when I work best. But it's really inconsistent. Like, sometimes I'll get into, like, a real kind of groove and just like every day I'll come home and like late at night work on it. And then it'll be like months where I don't work on things at all. So it's really kind of inconsistent. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a, at a certain point I evolved the ability to stay up really late with like not a huge detriment the next day at work. So that's been a real help. Cool. <laughs> like if you can stay up till like 4am and then the next day, like go into roll into work at 830 and still be like kind of lucid uh, that's a huge help. That's awesome. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I think I can involve that. A bit yeah, already, do it <laughs> for sure. Like I, I stay up late anyway, working on articles and right? stuff and, you know, going to jujitsu at four thirty in the morning. So I should be able to do this if I put my mind to it. <laughs> it's good advice. I have faith in you. Um, in terms of the dead kid detective agency, tell us about that because I mean, you haven't completely abandoned your illustrative talent i mean and you do illustrate uh the cover and also uh inside there's like illustrations to let people know some of the stuff that you're talking about there's a nice in the first book there's a nice likeness of hp lovecraft that's true yeah (laughs) congratulations so uh tell us about that how did the dead kid detective agency come into being yeah so i mean the dead kid
1: detective agency was kind of just grew out of my interest in books for young people and particularly my interest in like morbid spooky stuff. It's funny, as a kid, I really like spooky books, but movies really scared me. But then as I got older, like I love horror movies, I watch a ton of them. So I've always been interested in kind of macabre stuff. Uh, And so this kind of grew out of this. I just wanted to write a mystery series that was all about ghosts. So the concept is... October Schwartz is this girl, she's kind of a goth kid who moves to a new town and her house backs onto a local cemetery. And uh, she starts seeing stuff back there and eventually she realizes she's raised from the dead, the ghosts of five dead kids, essentially each from a different era in Canadian history. So there's like a dead United Empire loyalist and a dead kid who came to Canada via the Underground Railroad and like all these sort of like dead kids representing different parts of Canada's past. Uh, And they kind of befriend each other and eventually they solve mysteries together. So using October's smarts and the dead kids abilities to walk through walls and stuff, uh, they kind of team up and the idea is that they help her solve a mystery that she wants solved in the first book. And that each successive book, none of the dead kids knows how they died or why they died. So she's going to help them figure out like what happened to them in their final days. But yeah, the concept kind of came, I don't know. It was kind of a, a concept that I, thought up and I didn't want to make it a comic. Uh, I kind of wanted to make it more a book like uh, a book for kids but Why? I also wanted to have it spot illustrations. I always tell people it's like if Nancy Drew or goth and her all her friends were dead um, so kind of keeping in that line I wanted to have like spot illustrations throughout like a Nancy Drew book or like a Hardy Boys book that Every sort of like 12 pages, you kind of get an illustration of something happening in the book at that point. What made
0: you decide to not make it a comic and just do a book? Uh, it book? Why is it better? I don't know.
1: I think I really wanted to play with the voice. Like I wanted a lot of it. And so it's something that the book often gets criticized for, but I really wanted to have a very involved narrator, like a narrator who is like almost overbearing in the book. So... The book actually alternates between October's voice, like in first person, and then in this kind of omniscient narrator who's kind of like uh, fairly sarcastic and kind of makes fun of the characters in the book at certain points. Yeah, which I really like. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but I feel like that kind of stuff is maybe, and maybe not, but I've, I felt like that was kind of harder to do in comic form to have this like very present narrator who is almost a character in the series, him
0: or herself. Right, right. Exactly. I loved the sarcasm. I loved the change of narrator. I thought that was amazing because no other book that I know really does that. Yeah. And that actually was like a suggestion of an editor. Originally, it was all
1: in that sarcastic narrator's voice. And my editor um, at the time, Erin Creasy, really suggested she's like, Oh, like I really like this, but also there are times where I really want to be in October's head and be like, oh, how does she feel about, you know, being in this peril at this certain point? Or how does she feel about her dad? Like her dad, uh, she has a single dad and her dad struggles with clinical depression. And it's like, you know, uh, it's one thing to have it, you know, seen from the outside, but can we get into October's head and how she feels about like, you know, having to like watch over her dad on days when he's like really struggling with it?
0: Right, right. That's awesome. Um, for the book, like, how did you how did you get it published? Did you just send a proposal to different publishers, or...?
1: Yeah, it was kind of like that. I always tell people, like, uh, my publishing journey was mainly based on spite. So, at the time I was working, this is before I even started at Coach House, and I was working for a group called The Literary Press Group. And they do the sales and marketing for, like, a lot of smaller presses in Canada. And I was working there, and every, like, season you'd just get catalogs full of authors and their books and their smiling author photos. And I would just see their faces and I would be like, oh, like, I I mean, I can write a better book than that, can I? And I was just like, out of spite, I was like, I'll do this, I can can do this. And I think I arrogantly thought at that point, working in publishing, I knew enough people in publishing. I was like, I know enough people that I can send it to people and they'll put it like on editors desks, right? Like I kind of did it without an agent, And just assuming that, you know, I know somebody at this publisher, I know somebody at this publisher, if I send it to them, hopefully they can send it on to the right people. Um, But it turns out that most people were not interested in this book. Like a lot of people read the book and said like, oh, thanks, but not interested or thanks or like it's kind of too similar to something we did last season. There was one publisher who was really interested in it, but wanted to take out all the Canadian references, um, like make it like just sort of generic North American so that they could sell it into the U.S. easier, I guess. Right. Um, And I wasn't really interested in doing that. There were cases where people were interested and I'd rewrite it and resend it and then they were like no longer interested in the book. So, at the point when it got published, I felt like I kind of exhausted almost all the publishers in Canada. Uh, And ECW was a press that I'd done illustration work for before. Like I'd illustrated other authors' books. Like I'd illustrated one author's book and illustrated a book that was like a guide to Canadian universities um, and they hadn't, they didn't publish YA or middle grade books at that point, but then they got in touch with me and they're like, Hey, we heard you did a book for, did a YA book. And I was like, yeah, but you guys don't do that kind of stuff. And they're like, go, oh, we're going to start. So I was one of the first books in their kind of young readers program and they've since done a lot more, but, uh, I was one of the first ones. So that's kind of how that. Came about when I sent it to them. They were really interested in the. Process.
0: That's awesome that it's somebody that you weren't initially going to even send. It yeah, to exactly. <laughs> and that they reached out to you. It's always these weird things that happen. Yeah, it was like a
1: total accident. Like I, just because I had done illustration work for them, they were like, "Oh, we hear you're working on something else." And they're like, "Oh, we're going to start doing kids' books." And it turned out to be like worked out really well for both of us because the first two books were up for a award in Ontario that was like turned out like selling a fair number of the first two books. And it means, like, they're in libraries all around uh, Canada, which is great both for me, but also for them. Because that meant, like, oh, they got a book on this, you know, award shortlist. That means they're kind of getting known now as as a publisher of kids' books.
0: That's awesome. I, I really like that. I wanted to ask you, like, with the spot illustrations, and I, and I, I don't know how it works. Yeah. So I always <laughs> wanted to know how something like putting spot illustrations in your writing when you're writing a novel works, because it's like, I'm like, okay, you're writing the book, you're on your word processor. Yeah. Do you suddenly like stop, print it out and draw a thing <laughs> and then continue to write or, and I'm like, that's not what happens. <laughs> so how do they know like where to put the spot illustration and when you're drawing it, how do you indicate that this illustration is going In a particular place in the book and that sort of thing. Like, how does the graphical elements of the book integrate with the text of the book?
1: Yeah, that's funny. Uh, It's, yeah, not like that at all. Although, so, like, before I started writing any of the books, I drew a lot of character sketches of the main characters. So, I knew, like, what they looked like and so that I could describe them when I was writing the book. But then, usually, I just go through and totally do the text. And it isn't until pretty late in the process that I do the illustration. So, like... The book has already gone through a few edits by the time I do the illustrations. And then I'll just sit down and figure, like, read the book again. I'll be like, oh, this would be good to illustrate. Oh, it'd be fun to illustrate this. And I usually try to make sure that every chapter has at least a few illustrations. So, then I go through and then just draw them. Um, Like, after the book is pretty much done, I'll draw certain scenes or certain characters at points in the book. And then I'll send it to uh, the publisher and I'll just indicate vaguely where it goes I'll be like it's in this chapter and it's around this point and they kind of decide where it will go sort of in the layout
0: and that uh, that's to your editor or just to the uh, well it's to it's actually to
1: usually to the production editor so that's a person who's kind of laying it out in the font like in pages and so they know where to put it right 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 okay cool but it's funny because actually during that process sometimes I'll totally Forget things. So I'll send them a finished illustration and they'll, and they'll come back to me like, uh, You said in the book that she's wearing a hoodie at this point, but you didn't draw her in a hoodie. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, right. So then I'll have to redo that illustration because some editor notices like there's a real inconsistency in what I've drawn
0: or what i described. At least there's people standing up for continuity You're right, like yeah. somewhere. <laughs> you know? That's awesome because. I don't think many authors who write novels even interact with the production editor. Like it sounds like for most authors, like how their book looks is really beyond their control. And you have this opportunity to like really take control of it and like really know what's going on from a production standpoint. Yeah, it totally like depends
1: on the size of the publisher and oftentimes the size of the author, right? Like if you're like a fairly new author and with a bigger publisher... A lot of times you won't have any control over the cover or anything of how it looks. And I'm not saying that I have like total control over it, but I do have like a lot more input than I think a lot of people have, which is really nice. Like I do the cover illustrations, the cover design has like a pretty consistent look, but I do the cover illustrations and there's a lot of back and forth with the team at ECW about that and if any changes need to be made and same with the interiors as well.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, because I can, I, it's so cool knowing you for as long as I have, I can spot an Evan Monday illustration pretty, <laughs> pretty well. So it's like, yeah, he definitely did this. This <laughs> is awesome. It's not somebody trying to like ape his style or something like that. So, so that's really cool. They look like really amazing and these are like Hefty books. like for YA novels, like this is not like your your Hardy Boys or your you know easy reading situation. Like these are these are novels. Like yeah, they're pretty big. They take a while to write. They're each like around three hundred
1: pages. So yeah, usually I tell people. People ask for the age range, and I'm always like, oh, go for the upper end of that spectrum because there's a lot of reading. Like if your kid, because they're intended for kids ages nine to twelve. But I'm always like, if your nine-year-old is not reading a
0: lot, they're not going to get through this book because there's like so much text. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. For sure. And like what I loved about the book is like your sort of sarcastic sense of humor, which you already kind of have. Like I heard Evan Monday uh, <laughs> <laughs> coming when, through, yeah. through. as I, I was reading. Yeah. How do you like, how do you figure out like wh- where the jokes are going to go and like the stuff that you're going to comment on? You know, what's what's the sensibility that you wanted to have? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of it is just me writing
1: and revising uh, in terms of jokes. But I find it hard to write very sincerely. Like, I find it hard to write a whole chapter without, like, a single joke or a single, like, kind of a to it. And maybe that's just, like, a personal failing. But I have a, like, hard time doing anything earnestly. So, there's always some jokes. But I try to, like, rein them in for the Octobers chapters like I mean there's some jokes in her chapters as well but I think she's a lot less like mean in her jokes than the narrator I would hope and I try to balance that out. Uh, actually one of my favorite things is um, the books all the books have an appendix at the back and the appendix kind of explains because there are a lot of references to like movies to songs right. to, to books to things like that and a lot of them are references that are like That are for things that have existed longer than the readers of the book have, right? Like there's stuff from the 80s and 90s or even further back. And so I have like a little appendix at the back that will explain in like two sentences what MC Hammer is or like what... I don't know, Night of the Living Dead is and just explaining it in like a very short and kind of jokey
0: manner as well. Yeah, I love it because it's like super sophisticated and then I'm like, but the stuff that I was reading when I was a kid, like it wasn't for kids. Like I was absorbing all kinds of pop culture stuff and like it doesn't really talk down to its reader at all. Like it's fully like get on board with this MC Hammer. What do you mean right? the where MC <laughs> Hammer is? Come on, everybody knows. Exactly. I mean, he's universal.
1: But yeah, they're also, le- yeah, I just think back to what I was reading at that age. I'm like, oh, I had li- like moved on to like Ray Bradbury and Stephen King books at that time. And those were not intended for kids. Like I think kids read them a lot, but mm-hmm. those books aren't really intended for kids. But I just like, oh, I'll figure out, I don't know, what all these references are along the way,
0: you know? Right, and you're kind of like the literary hipster. Like you, <laughs> you know for sure. Like, like you know, you have all the you have all these amazing, cool like references and jokes. Like, as a Jewish guy, I was like, "There's so many like Orthodox <laughs> Jewish references in here. Where where did that come from?" Ah, uh, that was kind of a I don't know. I think
1: actually part of it was so uh, in the first book, and they show up like kind of in later books too, although less centrally. There's a orthodox jewish klezmer punk band uh that i guess her new friends that she makes at school like try to convince her to see um and i was just trying to like have like a weird i think there's so many like offshoots of punk like there's always like you know there are you're like flogging mollies and uh Dropkick Murphys, who are kind of like Celtic punk. Right. There's like uh, what you call it? Gogol Bordello, who describe themselves as like Gypsy punk. So I was trying to figure out like some kind of like offshoot of punk that hadn't that I wasn't like aware of as a big thing yet. Yeah. So I kind of settled on on this like klezmer punk band. I think there might actually be there probably klezmer are punk tons fans. of yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to have like a fictional one that was kind of local. Yeah. Um, so that sort of just became a big part of the first book, and those guys have shown up like in in later later editions as well. Yeah. <laughs> they're,
0: they're called the Potsdam Conference? Yeah, the Potsdam Conference. Potsdam yeah, Conference. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I was like, wow, like, is Evan Monday Jewish and I just didn't know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. Yeah, just, but it's funny, like, it's weird. Uh, I guess for me, like, local bands were a big part of my high school experience. So they show up a lot, like, going to the Y and watching, like, local punk bands was, like, a big part of my high school who
0: did you who did you Uh,
1: so I grew up in Oakville so a lot of it was going to like the Burlington YMCA and like seeing local bands and like I can't even think of like half their names like the only band that they were like this pop punk band called uh, the Pettit Project uh, that I think I saw a bunch of times but that was just part of it. So the, even in the, the most recent book, Connect with Scott's, one of the mysteries is around a battle of the bands at their high school. And one of the bands gets accused of stealing all the money they were like fundraising at the conference. So they're a band called Crenshaw House. But it's all about sort of this rivalry between bands and one band getting sort of accused of stealing money. And October has to
0: solve this mystery in addition to her friend's death. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And like the of sophisticated sarcasm. Like as an adult, I was thoroughly entertained. Like, uh, yeah. Wasn't like a kid's book. Oh, a kid's book. What the hell? No, <laughs> no, like I felt like I was talking to Evan Monday, like in the book. It was, it was, it was awesome. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I feel like half the readership of these books are like
1: adults as well. Like I think a lot of adults like it as well. Cause it's, all the stuff that they're. I mean, a lot of adults read y a already. so, but like these ones, I think in particular, because there are so many references to like mm. horror movies and and music and TV from like, you know, twenty years ago that people are really into them.,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, because you're like a published author, And because everyone, you know, talks about getting published as such like an insurmountable (laughs) thing that, you know, will happen if you're lucky kind of Mm -hmm. thing. What do you think it is about your stuff that, you know, was interesting for places like ECW?
1: I I don't know. I mean, I think it is difficult to get published and it is really like a, a process where you just get rejected a lot and at times it seems like it's... Impossible. Um, I don't know what it was about this book series. I think there are like a number of things. Hopefully, going for it. Like one is that they're mysteries, and I think mysteries are uh, if they're done any any degree of well. And I don't think these are like amazing mysteries, but hopefully they they work somewhat. Um, I think that's of interest. I think the Canadian history angle is like something that makes it a bit different. There are not a lot of kids' books that deal with Canadian history in a way that's not. Earnest, Like, I feel like there are a lot of books that deal with Canadian history, but a lot of times it's treating it as if they're like vegetables or it's like, oh, you gotta, you should read these because it's important that you learn about the War of 1812. It's important that you learn about this. Um, And I think that the goal of the book was trying to make stuff where it was like, you hopefully learn a, a little bit about history, but that it was, that wasn't the point. The point was that hopefully it was a funny and like weird uh, mystery but you also maybe learned a little bit about you know the war of 1812 while you were reading it but mostly you were there for like the jokes and like characters who's you know ripping off their rotting arms and like that kind of stuff
0: right you said earlier that you were like into horror and that sort of yeah. stuff what kind of stuff were you did you dig I mean,
1: as a kid, I was mainly into books. Like, I really liked uh, Stephen King. I really liked the scarier Ray Bradbury stuff. I really liked, like, ones for kids, too. So, like, John Belair's. There were those, like, Benicula books when I was much younger. Like, the one about the vampire rabbit and, like, the dog and cat trying to convince its owners that this is, like, a dangerous rabbit. (laughs) So, I really liked that stuff. But horror movies really scared me as a kid. But I always liked kind of, like horror light stuff so i was really into like scary stories to tell in the dark and like that kind of stuff which is like oh i guess that's scary but not really yeah were you also (laughs) into
0: canadian history as well
1: uh not so much i mean could but it was like a thing where i was really into history and when i moved to canada i there's like a totally different relationship with history than there is in the u.s like i feel like the u.s um for better or worse really has done a great job of selling itself on its own myths, right? Like, everyone is, like, really sold on this concept of, like, U.S. history and, like, the, like, firsts and left conflicts and all that kind of stuff. In Canada, it's almost like history is like, oh, yeah, we have history, I guess. Like, it's almost, like, embarrassing to talk about Canadian history for some people. right? Uh, But there's no reason it should be. Like, I feel like it's just as interesting as any country's history. And it just, there hasn't been this, like project of like retelling these myths, um, with all it's like, you know, problems and conflicts. So I felt like part of the project was, I wanted to learn more about Canadian history and reading these books or not reading and writing these books. Part of it was learning more about Canadian history and learning about kind of the exciting parts of it.
0: Cool. In writing these books, what are some of the like most crazy things that you learned that's oh, come mind. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot.
1: I mean, the most recent book, Connect with Scots, is all about the Underground Railroad. And I think a lot of people know about that Canada was the end point or like the terminus for the Underground Railroad in a lot of places. But I mean, for me, the, the weird part was like Canada had slavery up until 1833. So, like, by the time that the Underground Railroad was active... Uh, there was no slavery. It was outlawed in Canada. But before that, there were lots of people who owned slaves, like, throughout on, what we now know as Ontario. So, for me, that was kind of, like, a thing I don't think gets taught a lot in school. We kind of see Canada as this, like, land of They're freedom, the heroes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is a freedom who? once. Like, this is, you made it. You have freedom. And yeah. Like, that was true then. But, like, up until 1830, like, you were people were still being owned, right? Yeah. And we're like
0: this advanced citizenry who yeah. looks down on the states. That sort of happens now. Yeah, yeah. And we don't really acknowledge like some of the stuff that, you know, well, yeah, is some part of, of our
1: own. Darker parts of our own yeah, past, right? Yeah. So like that was kind of shocking to me. And even the idea of the Underground Railroad, like they're just like so many amazing, but like incredible stories in it. Like there's a story of a, a famous guy. There's actually, it's funny because there's a comic creator named Box Brown Uh, who does really cool books his book about tetris is amazing um but there was a guy henry brown who got the nickname box because he shipped himself to freedom like he shipped himself in a box to philadelphia to like get out of slavery which is amazing or there was another guy who's actually a character in the book um who was an ornithologist but he was also part of the underground railroad and he used his like credentials as an ornithologist uh to help people escape to freedom. So, what he would do is like, he would go down to a plantation in the south and he's like, I'm here to see the exotic southern birds and he'd like, get all this time to spend because he was also like, a wealthy white man, no one to think anything about him like, going off and wandering in the fields by himself. But then he would arrange with slaves to help, like, he's like, all right, meet at this point, at this time and help a number of people escape uh, just through his like, connections as a, as a bird watcher essentially. That's
0: awesome. And, That's so cool. And they kind of have like it's perfect for Halloween and it's Inktober right now. It is Inktober, yeah. I mean did, did, have you ever participated in
1: Inktober? So no, I haven't ever participated in Inktober. The one thing that I came closest to it was like a project I did all through last year. Um, I was like, I wanted a daily drawing project so I actually drew a Canadian from history every single day. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I did 365 Canadians. So the whole project was to draw a Canadian of note every single day, because
0: it was Canada 150.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I was drawing like a different Canadian every day. So I did technically draw and ink something every day in October, but it was just sort of a coincidence that uh, it was
0: not different from like the rest of the year, really and this was this was like an awesome project you guys uh, the, this 365 canadians i mean they're not like the canadians that you would expect right yeah, like, yeah. who are some of the people that you that oh you man drew? they're like all over so like it was
1: like historical figures um you know people like some people we know so people like uh tecumseh or uh even like uh you know banting people like that but also like celebrities so he like drew john candy got sandra O oh in there but also like f- people who i think most people would, would have never heard of but have like these super fascinating stories uh like there's this military uh officer uh, matsumi mitsui who is a japanese canadian he was like one of the most decorated soldiers in world war one uh like a, essentially a war hero in world war one and then world war two came around and he he and his family were interned because Japan was the enemy, and all the Japanese Canadians on the West Coast were forced into internment camps. And he spent like the rest of his life fighting the Canadian government to get an apology. Uh, so, like, his story is like an incredible story to go from like one of Canada's greatest heroes to being like locked up a, as a prisoner of war essentially for the crime of being, you know, of Japanese background. It's like such a tragic and bizarre, but like, I don't know, very interesting to Canadian history story. Did anyone that you drew find out about it? And find out about to it? You? There were a few, like, because there are definitely people who are alive and people who really like them. So um, who are that? Like Nayla Hopkinson, who's a great science fiction right. author. Right, she's,
0: she's actually working on House of Whispers yeah. right now
1: in the Sandman universe for DC Comics. Yeah, so I drew her and she like, saw it online and like got in touch with me and, and seemed to really like it. Uh, so she was one. I also do uh, Dwight Drummond who's an anchor for uh, oh what is he? He's at CBC now I think so yeah. he's, he's Toronto News um, but yeah he saw his and he really liked it. So there are a few people like kind of people who are obviously contemporary some people who are like oh that was you know that was my mom and they're like thanks for drawing her that kind of stuff so yeah there's some kind of cool connections made through that.
0: That's awesome. Like, kind of tweets or Facebook? Or yeah, you mainly tweets. Yeah. So, I
1: started off, it was entirely, like, a Twitter project. Yeah. And then I eventually kind of went over to Instagram, but I was formatting the pictures for Twitter, so they didn't quite fit that well
0: on Instagram. But, yeah, it was primarily, like, a Twitter project. Cool. That's awesome. And, like, House of Whispers by Neil Hopkinson. Yeah. It's a comic that I'm reading right now. It, like... There's, like, it's all about, like, Haitian mythology uh, integrated into the Sandman universe, the dreaming and stuff. It's pretty cool. Really really liked it. Yeah, like,
1: she was another author, was, like, one of the first people who I saw writing about Toronto. Right. And, like, a way I was like, oh, like, Toronto's, like, can be used as a basis of, like, a science fiction or a fantasy novel. It was really cool. Yeah. I think she's in L.A. though now. Yeah, she is. But, yeah, a lot of her, like, early books, like, Brown Girl in the Ring is, like, a great book. And it has this, like, kind of...
0: Haitian science fiction Toronto universe that's awesome that's so cool Uh, yeah so I mean it's it's amazing that you're that you're going on tour with this stuff uh you're on tour right now yeah what are some of your experiences so far and like where are you going explain this tour to people yeah so i mean i'm going on tour
1: Uh, the tour is kind of like a a mishmash of a bunch of different things so some of them are like very intimate like workshops so i i tried to do a lot of programs where i'm like working with youth through the toronto library mainly so like i'll go in and do like a mystery writing workshop or a comic making workshop and those will be like kind of really small groups of like you know, 10 people at most, maybe a bit more, where we're just sort of working on making comics or making books. And then there'll be bigger things like I'm going to Calgary for their um, Writers Festival, WordFest, and doing a number of things. So i like talking on panels or doing presentations, uh, either for school groups or for like public groups where people, you know, buy tickets and go to those things. So I'm doing a, yeah, a number of stuff, everything from... Uh, events like that, I'm going to the Ottawa Writers Festival, which is kind of similar to the Calgary one, where it'll be like more public events. And then I'm taking part in kind of like uh, weird fun things. So uh, on October 31st, on Halloween night at the Toronto Reference Library, they're doing a live reading of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So they're going to read the entire book like a number of authors are contributing and you each sign up to read a certain section. And over the course of the night, they're going to read all of Frankenstein on Halloween night. So I'm taking part in that as well. That's awesome. I would go to that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's also like it's the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. Oh, don't I know? Because, (laughs) because, because, because one of our past guests, Alison O'Toole is kickstarting her coming into being book uh, right now. And uh, that's a zine. That's all about Frankenstein basically. Yeah, yeah. So, that's pretty awesome too. Like, and she's really into Frankenstein too. So, it's, it's perfect. That's yeah. That's the
1: best. Actually, one of the, this is like a total tangent, but you were talking about the Guillermo del Toro exhibit earlier. And one of the most amazing things to me was the original art he had from the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein comic. Oh, uh, wasn't that amazing? It was so amazing to see that work. Like, that work is incredible. And even more incredible was like, there was a little note on the side I was talking about. He basically like sprained his hand doing all the like cross hatching and stuff in it. So he sprained his hand and eventually like when that happened, he just switched hands. Right. He started using his left hand. I'm like, you what? (laughs) Yeah. And And there's, you can't tell like him drawing with his non-dominant hand is like, Light years beyond anything I could ever draw.
0: Yeah, and these are like uh, really intense. Yeah, <laughs> like it's intense line work, close together, lots of cross hatching. Like it was insane. Yeah, you know, I, I I met Bernie Wrightson once, and I was like, yeah. wow, like that that's insane. And and too bad I didn't like appreciate it, you know, when I met him to the level that I do that I that I do now, seeing all that stuff and like I the Frankenstein like, stuff.
1: Yeah, I find it's like that's the same with me. There are a lot of comic illustrators that you know, you find professional illustrators are always talking about as like legends, and for some of them, it takes you a while to get it. Right, like for him, is definitely one I was like, uh, I can, I guess it's okay, but like eventually like it's only in the past couple of years i've been like no this is like phenomenal work right right, right totally and even like it took me a while, long while to get into someone like mike McNola. like when i was a kid my brother and i like mike McNola, was shorthand for like bad art right. like we hated it <laughs> we're like why is everyone so blocky everyone looks like weird and like geometric uh-huh. and then like it was only like i don't know i guess by the time i got into like later in high school and university I was like no this is
0: like amazing he's one of the best illustrators ever like why right. did I ever hate this like the use of shadow yeah negative space and stuff like that like yeah it's it's just amazing but when I was like
1: 11 or 12 and like saw him drawing Cyclops I'm like this doesn't look like Cyclops this looks weird you know like yeah yeah <laughs> and
0: like even like you know Hellboy himself is like so square jaw yeah and, like, <laughs> it's all square and like circles and yeah, yeah. it's geometric yeah for sure. That's amazing, man. I really love, how, you know, this book. I, I really love, like, what you've done with it. Like, you, you've published, like, a book series. Like, do you ever look back and go, like, oh, my God, like, I have a book series?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think when you're in it and you're just trying to, like, write a new one, you're like, oh, I'll never finish this. But then you look back and you're like, oh, I did four books and they all came out, which is, like... Yeah, I can't... When I was, like, a kid, I couldn't imagine having, like, going into a bookstore and seeing four books that were written by me. Like, it's, like, it's just so... I feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to do that. So, even though there's supposed to be three more in this series, so there's supposed to be seven in total. So, even though I kind of dread having to write three more, (laughs) and I'm like, what am I going... When am I going to do that? It almost killed me to write these through four. But, yeah, I just look back and I see, like, how lucky it is and, like, amazing that these four books exist and they kind of make sense.
0: And working in like book PR, does that give you an advantage when you're going on tour or like, how does that, how does your job integrate with yourself as an author? Because it's kind of, it seems like double dipping, like you're an author, but you're also yeah. PR. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Like you try to keep it separate. Like, so <laughs> I'll often meet with like festival
1: organizers or radio producers or, or editors for like book sections of magazines and newspapers. And I have to like, I'm pitching the books that I'm publicizing and like, have to be careful not to be like slip in like, oh, and I have a book just in case you're in shit. A lot of time, I mean, most people at this point know. So like, editors are like, oh, when is your next book coming out? And then I'll like sheepishly admit, be like, uh, oh, it comes out in October. Um, but yeah, I try to keep them separate as much as I can. But yeah, at the same time, you are kind of doing double duty. Like this past weekend, I was doing a book festival, and I was there presenting my own work. But also, I had a lot of, like, not a lot, but I had a few authors who I was the publicist for. So, like, I would go and just sort of check in with the author, make sure they had everything they needed for their presentation, and then, like, a half hour later, have to go and do my own presentation. So, you're kind of doing both duties. And, like, when I'm in Calgary, uh, there will be authors that, you know, I pitch to that festival and who are doing stuff sort of for their books. So, I'll be working with them as well as presenting my own book. So, you're kind of, like, trying to keep a balance of not making it all about you, but also there are certain times where it's, you are presenting your book. So, you do kind of have to make it all
0: about your own book. We mentioned uh, Inktober earlier and, yeah. uh, you know, this is perfect for Halloween. I mean, the Dead Kid Detective Agency mm-hmm. and Halloween is coming up. So, what is your relationship to Halloween? Uh, Halloween is like my
1: favorite holiday of all. Uh, it's my Christmas essentially like I love Halloween. I try to dress up every single Halloween every once in a while. It's kind of moved around, but uh, for a couple years, I was trying to watch a horror movie every single night uh, in Halloween, like during October. So I'll try to like, I don't know if I'll get to it this year because October also tends to be pretty busy in the book world, but I do try to watch a lot of horror movies and try to do i don't know i do enjoy dressing up in costume
0: yeah what what's with the fall <laughs> and books is that just because of back to school cuz it seems like it seems like the book world is taking advantage of us cuz there's summer reading <laughs> yeah. and then there's fall, fall reading fall is a big book Uh, season
1: for a couple reasons. One is that's when all the award nominations come out. So like you have your Giller Prize, you have your Writer's Trust Prize. A lot of the big prizes happen in fall. So a lot of the big books they also release in fall to time in the hopes that those books will get, some of the books that they're releasing in fall will also get shortlisted
0: or nominated for those awards that's like how the oscars come out at the end of the year yeah exactly like a lot of
1: those prestigious films come out in like december november yeah yeah. it's similar to that like the holidays are also a big book buying season right so make sure that those books are out on tables when people are going around figuring out what they're gonna buy for friends and family uh, over the
0: holidays. Right. Right. And then summer, it's like when I was a kid, oh, yeah. it was all about the summer, summer reading. reading and yeah. How many, how many <laughs> books you could read in the summer? <laughs> like, geez. And then you want fall too? Yeah. It's a don't lot give of me things. any break. Yeah, Maybe no like break. March, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome, man. Well, I, it's good to see you successful and it's great to like connect with you again. Like it's always great when I have a friend on the podcast and, uh, and, and uh, it's, it's so awesome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. And uh, I'm really glad that you're uh, enjoying the books. All right. And uh, if, if you want to catch Evan, uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me online.
1: Uh, I have a website, do not Like And it's Mondays with a U, like my last name. Uh, and I'm also often on Twitter at do not Like
0: Monday, but no S, because I screwed up the handle. Oh, so (laughs) so it's like... So, I mean, the way we met usually yeah. is I would just make fun of your last name. That's, right. That yeah. was sort of, that was sort of my entry point was like making fun of Evan's last name because it always reminded me of Solomon Grundy and, and, <laughs> the, the, Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and that poem. So like, we, I have to know, and I think our, uh, our <laughs> listeners deserve to know, where does this whole Monday thing
1: come from? I don't know. I mean, it's my last name. It was my dad's last name. Apparently it's like a very non- super popular British last name um, but yeah a lot of people like uh, another the fellow friend of ours Sean Ward like when we first met at comic convention he's like he's like oh that's a great pen name and I was like no it's just my real name he's like oh really he's like that's so lucky it sounds like a it sounds like a like an author's name I was like yeah no it's just my name <laughs> uh, so it is a really kind of lucky name it's good for for memory whenever I tell people my like email address which is also a variation of i don't like mondays it's like yeah you get a laugh from like whoever the you know ticket vendor is or whatever you're giving the the email address to um my parents so yeah my dad is british apparently it's a british last name there's there's like this guy i see at he's like poet and i see him at parties every once in a while and he's always like i've seen him like probably 20 times, 24 times. Every time I meet him, he comes up and tells me the same story about how his favorite, like, Renaissance composer is a British guy named Anthony Monday, which is my dad's name. And I'm
0: like, oh, interesting. But uh, you're not related to them at all? I don't think so, no. Uh, okay. Because <laughs> Monday is actually a pretty common name in Britain.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I don't know any, like, I I don't know any famous Mondays who I'm related to. When I was a kid, I watched the Uh, show um, Square One television Mm -hmm. which was this like educational program that tried to make math fun Mm -hmm. and they had a section called MathNet where it was two detectives solving crimes using math and the detective there was named Kate Monday and that was like
0: I was very excited to have like someone with the same last name Wow. So, so, what's your relationship to the day of the week, Monday? I mean, kind of awkward. I guess
1: so. It's one that everyone hates usually, um, but I don't know. It's fine.
0: It's fine. <laughs> Does any like whenever Monday happens to the people in the office, like? Make fun of you In relation to their Hatred of Monday I mean not usually But usually it's just Like a joke
1: They're like Oh hey Monday It's no offense Or you know Or they'll see If they'll see me Like oh I have a Monday But it's Tuesday now Or like that Some kind of variation Of that Right This this is stuff That that I used to do (laughs) Exactly
0: yeah So people still do that And I'm glad That you're taking It all in stride I mean I enjoy A good pun Based on someone's name So Cool (laughs) Awesome I'm glad we're not Mortal enemies No <laughs> and uh, and we could say friends whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so I guess we'll we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. On one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.